not blessed to have the sermon today given by Mr. Matt Steele entitled Running the Race. Believe it or not, I was a younger man. I was fairly athletic. And uh, when I was uh, in high school, uh, I, could, uh, I could probably outrun almost anybody in, in uh, the 100-meter sprint high school. I was every sport, um, except I did not enjoy rugby because I didn't have enough body mass, and I would end up in the bottom of the scrum and mushed into the you know, mud. But I really enjoyed uh, athletics, running, and I, I had a, a very interesting experience. Uh, I can't remember exactly which year it was, but when I, I left school for the summer, I was one of the fastest kids in the 100 meters. And then when I came back, I was one of the slowest and turned into a long-distance runner instead, and it was the strangest experience. But some of you, many of you, may have had some similar experiences, right? We, we're familiar with this idea of running in a race. And uh, maybe now the idea of running in a race kind of exhausts us, just the idea of running in the race. And yet we are still running in a race. And the scriptures, uh, you know, there's a couple of different analogies of running in a race. And that life is this, this race that we're in. And we certainly feel, uh, maybe as we're getting to the end of the race, that we're running out of what? Time, <laughs> right? This, is, you know, this race is timed in a certain sense. And we have these desires to finish well, don't we? Cross the line and achieve the goal of running the race. And so in Scripture, we're presented, I think, with at least two different types of running in this race. And it's really pretty simple. We can run the race with or without Jesus. Pretty simple, right? We can run it with or without Jesus. So, I can step down now, and that's, that's the whole message. Have, uh, go have some snacks, and have some fellowship, and, and, and go home. But it's not, what was that, Ken? A little deeper? Because it's not really that simple, is it? It's not that simple. Because if it was a 100 meters dash, well, we would have been done already. It is much more like a marathon or a cross-country run. So, it's not that simple. But because it's not that simple, we come to Sabbath services every day. We do Bible study. We pray. We look to God to guide us daily in every facet of this race that we're in. This long distance race towards this goal that we long to have and long to reach, and, and, and it is a beautiful goal. And yet, sometimes, what do we see the most? The race. 
right? We just see the track ahead of us, and we don't necessarily remember the goal. But if you could boil down all the messages that have ever been given from this podium right here, it really is about this, about running the race, and running the right race, because there is a wrong way to run the race. You know, have you ever seen some of those uh, races where it's the, <laughs> it's called, uh, I think it's the long distance walking races or something like that. Have you ever seen that? And it looks like these people have rubbery legs the way that they flex their hips. And I think that's a wrong way to run the race. It just doesn't look natural and I'm sure they are damaging their body over time. So there is a right way and a wrong way to run the, the race. We are to run the race to live this life every single day with Jesus, with the Father. Again, it sounds simple, but life isn't simple because we are not simple, are we? We are complicated. We're broken and we're weak. We're misguided. We get lost on this race. We get the wrong map at times. We're fearful. We're resentful. We're loving. We're passionate. We're strong. We're kind. We're hurtful. Faithful. Faithless. We're all of these things at once. Aren't we? And it's exhausting to be this complicated. And I sometimes wish God had made us just a little less complicated. Could you make us a little bit more simple? We're this confusing mixture of emotions and thoughts and ideas. And I suppose this is what makes life interesting. At least to observe in others. Right? Well, they're really messed up. Just watch you. You want to see a disaster? Watch that person. Of course... You know, they're watching us as well. This complexity is inherent within us. It's just built in. And, and we find it confusing, at least I do. I find it frustrating and sometimes overwhelming. But we're in this complicated body and mind and spirit as we run this race. If you're like me, you long for simplicity. Anybody ever long for simplicity? For me, the image of a small cabin on the side of a hill, looking at, at a valley, just a beautiful river running down through it, my own vegetable garden, people leaving me alone. You have that version? Yeah. Pretty good version. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Or not yet, anyway. But we'll have some, some version of that, right? Ugh. We just want life to be simple. We want life to be straightforward. We want it to be good. We want it to be good again. Don't we? We want simplicity of heart without the complexity of conflicting emotions. Mixed emotions, as we call it. Because we think that if we can get to that place, then we won't have what? We won't have pain. Because if we're honest, complexity really 
it leads to pain. It leads to struggle, difficulty. And so we also think about this in the terms of our mind. Have you ever just sat down to, to have some prayer time with God? And before you know it, you're off in all of these strange directions that your mind is taking you about tasks that remain undone, about work, about what you said to your neighbor three weeks ago. Uh, you know, whatever it is, and we get so distracted and there's so many inputs. And of course, we all just addicted to these devices that we look at and get even more inputs. Ah, oh, complexity of, of what's going on in our head and our thoughts. And we just want our thinking to be simple, at least I do, but then that would make me simple-minded, right? And some of you may be saying, well, well done, Matt, you've achieved that. But we want clarity, we want simplicity, and, and, and <laughs> much less complexity in life. This human desire for things to be simple, for it to be easier, we just say easier, but we really want easy. Without tremendous struggle, and certainly without pain, this is our story. All of our story in one, one facet or another. In fact, there was a great king who wrote about this. And this great king, you could say, was in severe need of some antidepressants. His name was Solomon. And you can tell that he needed antidepressants because he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And don't get me wrong, it is full of great wisdom and knowledge and insight and truth. And it is also completely and utterly wrong. He missed the point in lots of ways. And you, could, you can find little moments where he's hinting at a greater truth, but a lot of his conclusions, I don't know about you, but when I read them, I'm just like, this doesn't gel with the gospel. This doesn't gel with what we know is the ultimate goal of mankind. It's a basically a book about man's desire to live a simple, uncomplicated life. And Solomon's tried to give us a prescription of how to get it. And, and as I said, he misses a lot of the point while still giving us wisdom and truth and things that are really valuable in life. But whenever he presents anything in life where it is negative or futile, when his conclusions are, it's vanity, right? It's vain and it's futile. Always add on to the end of that statement without. Because that's the true context that we need to take much of what is in Ecclesiastes. So, let me give you an example. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that's Solomon. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is vain. Thanks a lot, man. Making us feel great already. We just love life for you. Can you imagine being one of his 700 wives and concubines? The guy is pretty depressing. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. And the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north and the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run to the sea. Yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after. See what I mean? Give him an antidepressant. He needs some help. I mean... If this is all that there is, and he's not wrong, but he's also very wrong. All of the things that he's described are true, and yet they're not. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under, the, under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. It sounds like running in a race, doesn't it? Being exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness. Hold on a second, Solomon. Who obtained your greatness for you? God. Right. I think he's um, missing the point. I think he's forgetting some things. Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? That Mark touched on earlier. You know, he's just looking at his great kingdom, and all of a sudden that judgment comes on him. But he did all this. He didn't get this wisdom. He didn't make it. He didn't bring it to himself. God gave it to him. Remember that, that, that prayer, right? That he set to be wise and, and, and put that in his heart. And so God gave that to him and all the riches. Look, I have attained greatness. And I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I have set 
my heart to know wisdom and to know madness, folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, in some ways, um, I haven't, I, I have intended to read one of his books. I've read articles by Richard Dawkins. You, know, you guys know who Richard Dawkins is. He's a activist, atheist. He's a scientist, and he's very much uh, against Christianity and against the idea of God. And like a lot of his peers, it's almost like they've just done a study like what Solomon's done and come to the conclusion that there isn't a God and it's all worthless and useless and we're just randomly here. And no wonder they live the lives that they do and have the perspective that they do. And so again, we see this idea here in verse 18. Solomon says, For in much wisdom, much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I think in another place he says, And much study, reading is a weariness to the soul. And so that sounds like he's saying, I wish life could just be more. I almost wish I hadn't down, done this exercise and tried to learn all these things and tried to understand the ends of everything because it's led me to this place of complexity, struggle, and of sorrow. Adding too much knowledge just makes things complicated and painful. Ignorance is bliss, right? Everybody believe ignorance is bliss? Except it's not, right? It's really not. We like the idea, and we, we want to embrace it, but why is there a newspaper called the National Enquirer? Or any of those stupid, junky newspapers? Why do they exist? Because people want to know things. They want to know gossip. They want, it, they want to know. We do want to know. And then afterwards, when we know, we're like, I wish I didn't know that now. Right? So ignorance is not bliss. And this, I can prove, is not really our nature because it goes all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 1. Because here we have Adam and Eve in the perfect place, in the, in, the, in the beautiful, good Garden of Eden, in this amazing creation, and it's not enough. And, and that's, again, that's where Solomon is right, because he says that the eye, there isn't enough for the eye to see, and for the ear, there's no end of hearing. So we find this. He says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave, she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so we with them, in them, through them, agree that we really don't want to be ignorant and have that bliss. We want to know. Like they wanted to see. They wanted to have their eyes opened. They wanted to be like God. Good. Ignorance was actually just a hunger. To know. To learn that knowledge that would come. To be filled with that knowledge. That wisdom. Have you ever wondered why this tree existed? place. You ever thought about that? Why did God put this tree in the garden? Was it like a big setup? Jesus is saying to God, hey, let's put this tree in there. Let's see what happens. I don't think so. Why was it there? And why was it good to eat? I mean, God could have made the fruit like really prickly, you know, with thorns and just uh, not even going to cross my mind to eat that, to eat, you know, prickly things, although some people eat artichokes, so maybe, maybe that wouldn't have dissuaded them. But it looked and was good to eat. You ever thought of that? was good to eat, pleasant to the eyes. And she saw that it would make her wise. None of those things were challenged. None of those things are untrue. So here we have a tree in the garden that looked good to eat. That wasn't apparently poisonous to human beings other than in the spiritual sense. And yet, it, here it was. It feels a little bit like God has set it up. It feels like that. But was it? All was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil supposed to be eaten at a different time and with a different person. What if instead of listening Satan and, and taking that fruit, they rejected him and cast him away. And then sometime later, we would read in the scripture that says, The Lord God called Adam and Eve to himself and said, Look, didn't I tell you not to eat of this tree? And they said, Yes, Lord, and we have not eaten of that tree. And then God says, Well, now you may eat of that. I wonder if that could have been the story. 
The reason that I think that is firstly what we have in James. Chapter 1 and verse 12. You know, James is very clear. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, though, you know, he's basically saying, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So this tree is not a setup. There's something else, I think, that was supposed to happen with this tree. God didn't set us up to fail. And the clue, I think, to do that is what we find later after they have eaten of this tree. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And that's actually, uh, the Elohim is speaking here, right? Being God, the Father, and Jesus. And he says, They become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the, the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. There's an important point to notice in here, that man now has become like God knowing good and evil, understanding good and evil, experiencing good and evil. That was the plan all along. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God is about to create man, what does he say? Then God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. We are made to be like him, in his image, in his likeness. So I think that's a clue that there were probably a healthy, fruitful, no pun intended, way in which man was supposed to eat of that. It was intended for man, a way that would have led to righteousness instead of sin. And ultimately, the really damaging thing that they experienced was what? Shame. It was that shame that, that they felt when they realized their nakedness because they felt naked through their shame and wanted to be covered from that shame. Now, maybe heresy, so you can go ahead and throw your rock. But I think there's something to this. That that tree was there for a purpose. And you know, I think we've all experienced something like this, haven't we? I think we've all been exposed at times to things that are good. But we've been exposed at the wrong time. The wrong place. And in the wrong way. So what was intended for good has now brought about guilt and shame. I see many of you are nodding your head. 
Yeah, we've all experienced. So, along with that, is still this desire for us to know. So we may want it to have ignorance and be blissful in it, but we were in this blissful garden and we chose complexity and we chose difficulty. We might want to have all the good stuff and to know all the good things, to have it without pain, but that's not the way it works. So here we are. We are alive. Maybe sometimes we're more alive than others, but we're alive. We're here. and We're experiencing life. And we're complicated. We are dealing with shame. And we're dealing with the forbidden fruits that we have taken in our life. And we're dealing with the pain and the destruction that comes with that. But we still have a choice. Which way are we going to run our race? Right way? Solomon's way? (laughs) Very uh, much in need of antidepressants way? Very simple or trying to live simply, but not really being fulfilled? Or are we going to follow Jesus? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon presents us with his version of a life as a race. And it is the race without Jesus. He says, For I considered all this in my heart, in verse 1, so that I could declare it all, that the righteousness and the wise, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. That's true. All of our works are in the hand of God. He either permits it or he doesn't. He sometimes interferes and directs and messes around with our much beloved idea of independence and free thought and, and autonomy. But it's all in his hand. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. What's he talking about? Death. Yeah, that's the one thing that happens to all. And taxes. But it's death, isn't it? That's the thing that we all have in common. And whether we're good or bad, we all will end up in the grave. And that does not seem fair. And Solomon is rightly saying, you know, this is vanity. This isn't fair. So those that take an oath, those that stand up, those that try and be good, trying to be generous, will end up in the same place as those don't. What do we tack on the end of that? Without Jesus. Truly the hearts of the Son of Man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they are alive. And after that, they go 
to the dead. <laughs> madness. Have you ever experienced madness? You've probably seen it in other people, not in yourself. We are complicated beings full of all sorts of complicated dreams and desires and hopes and demands. But for him who is joined to all the living, he says, there's hope. Okay, all right, what, what, what's the hope for? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Doesn't sound like all that hopeful. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no, war, no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So all that we've struggled for, all that we've built, all the nice things we've put in our house, all the career that we've built, everything that we've poured into our children and our families and our church, it's all come to nothing, Solomon is telling us. Doubt. Jesus. Right? So what do we do now? Well, <laughs> talked about it already, and Solomon switches to the same place that we all want to go to. He says, all right, let's live a simple, good life. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. And let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. <laughs> which he has given you under the sun. And all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life. And in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. I just had an image of Solomon. He's sitting around with all the other wise men in the kingdom, and he's like, all right, I want to give you guys my treatise here. And at what point are they all like, can we jump off the wall of the palace? You know, this is just so down and so negative. And we often go to these scriptures, you know, when we are challenged in life. And that's, that's okay, because there is truth here. But we're always having to put the context of without. But I really like the, uh, the way the NLT version presents these verses. It says, so, go ahead. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a happy heart. For God approves of this. And he does. He wants us to have good things. He wants us to celebrate in the, the blessings of life. He's given us an entire celebration once a year where we get to indulge and, and spend on ourselves by his commandments. So he does want us to enjoy life. Wear fine clothes. Uh, with a splash of cologne. But that's an interesting way of saying it. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days <laughs> of your life that God has given you under the sun. 
the wife God gives you is your reward for all of your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Just enjoy the beautiful things in life. And that's good, and we should. This is really a truth from God. We should. Because when it's over, it's over. Without. There's nothing else left. There's no beauty in the grave. It's only decay. Right? Everything that we've worked for is gone. No learning or wisdom. All the memories and experiences are neural pathways, our cells in our brains that have the recording of however all that works, of our entire life experience, return back to the elements that they were made of. All of that's gone. And then he says, I returned from a night of drinking. No. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. Ah, now we're getting to the race. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happens and this is true, isn't it? We just have to look at our politicians. True. Absolutely. Right? We just have to look to all kinds of leaders in business to know this is true. You know, you have my personal gripe against Thomas Edison, you know, and how he stole the works of others. And then you have other people over here that are geniuses like Tesla that ended up as a pauper. Time and chance wherever it may be, this is true. We've seen it. For man also does not know time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it fails or when it falls suddenly on them without This is the race, the best version of the race, you could say, without Jesus. And, and again, there's so much truth in what Solomon is saying, and, and yet also it's wrong if we are in Christ. God does want us to enjoy good things in life. Absolutely. He gave us good things. He gave us a beautiful world to he gave us family and friends and relationships. He wants us to eat good food and wine. Or scotch, if that's your thing. He wants us to enjoy those good things. He wants good for us. He made the world for us to have those things. But he wants us. more than all the things. Enjoy those things. But he wants us to desire him more. And that is more along the lines and leading us into the race of Jesus. In fact, the most 
full and complete way of living life is with Jesus. The most complete way of experiencing every facet of life to its fullest extent is with God the Father. Christ. And we have, we, we've missed it oftentimes, especially if you just take broader Christianity as a whole. Because I think we get trapped into two lies, one of two lies that we adopt and follow. I think every denomination has at least one of these lies in their experience, if not both. In the modern era, one of the biggest lies is prosperity gospel. You've all heard of that, right? We all know the worst examples of that. Televangelists, just name it and claim it and Life will be good, and life will be easy, and your bank account will be full, and you'll have a Rolls Royce in the driveway, and life is good. And simple. Easy. Just by claiming it. Then, you know, I suppose there are uh, other sub-variants of that, because that sounds, to some of us, (laughs) a little too easy. There's got to be some work involved. So, how about the version that says, well, if we practice everything just right, if we obey the commandments just perfectly, then we'll get all of those good things. like that version better. Every tradition has these things. And it's a danger to us in our faith. If we tie it to the fullest extent, we give our extra money, all of our extra money to the poor, or visit every person who's sick. If we do just the right thing, then life will go well. Now, those, what are those things? Are they all good? They're all good things to do. But will they get us a simple, easy life without complexity and sorrow and pain? The other extreme, the other lie, is probably not as popular these days in, in these modern times that we live in. But this idea of living a celibate, austere life, no material pleasures, no joy, living, you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes, basically monks, right? A monastic life. That's dedicated to God and and escaping the world and avoiding any and all temptation. And and even worse than that, certainly in the medieval period, was this whole idea of beating oneself, purification through pain. Right? And they they really believed this, this stuff. A little crazy to think about. We don't do that today. Right? Sure. A version of that today is flagellating ourselves, beating ourselves, injuring ourselves emotionally and spiritually. 
undermining the faith that we have in Christ, not accepting the salvation truly given to us, seeing only the worst of There is bad, and there is good. Have we done that? That's going down that path of shame, isn't it? Staying in that shame and just obsessing on our brokenness and where we've short, fallen short, forgetting that we are redeemed. Scripture tells us. So again, I might be uh, throwing out some heresies here. May your rocks be soft. But these are two lies that I think that we can find in broader Christian doctrine. And they're founded on the idea of running the race alone without Jesus. Instead of running the race. So Jesus makes this really simple for us. In John chapter 10 and verse 7, breaking into the parable that he's talking about, the parable of the sheep, Jesus says to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who have ever come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out find pasture. That sounds good. That sounds like what we're looking for. We're looking for that green pasture where we can just, as a sheep, right, just eat to our heart's content and be filled. And nothing in there is dangerous to the sheep. You know, there are plants that sheep love to eat that are poisonous. The shepherd makes sure that he doesn't take the sheep to those places. So this is what we have. We have the good shepherd. We have Jesus taking us through his own salvation. He brought about through himself. He's putting us in this beautiful green pasture. My mind goes back to Wales, in my home country, and just the beautiful rolling hills of green pasture, all the sheep safely eating and enjoying life. Enjoying the good things. The thief, he says, does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life, that you may have it more abundant. And this is where it all hangs, my message today from this passage. On this one, one phrase, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundant. Easy, easy to overlook these words here, but the word abundantly is translated a number of different ways in the scripture, and it can be abounds all, abounds all the more, abundantly, advantage, all the more, beyond, as in beyond what's necessary, even more, it's sometimes translated as excessive. 
You want life excessively? I mean, who doesn't want more life? Further, greater, more abundant, more extremely, superfluous. You have this image, right, of, of really the 23rd Psalm. A cup runs over. It's just being poured over and filled over, and it just keeps, okay, wait, wait, that's enough. No, 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 it's not. I'm going to add some more. Just this full, abundant life. Pliably. But when we read this passage, we should read, we should really read it as Jesus meant it. I have come that you might have life. So he's saving us from death. He's giving life back to us, undoing the curse, undoing what we did when we desired to know more in the wrong way. And he is giving us an excessive amount of life, a life that abounds in all things, a life that is overflowing, a life that is full of the greatest challenges a human being could ever and the greatest pain. That's part of life, too. Full, abundant life. So that means in the pain and in the challenges, and a life that is full of the greatest joy, and the greatest pleasures, and elation that anyone could ever experience. Abundant life, every facet of life. He could have said it differently. He could have said, I've come that you may have only good things and no pain. But he didn't say that. He said, I have come so that you could live the maximum, fullest life possible for you. In Philippians, Paul reflects this. And, you know, he's, he was able to... Uh, to fully embrace this and, and achieve this and allow Jesus to develop this in him because he says in verse chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased. I know how to deal with that. I know how to experience it. I know how to go through that. To be abased, to be the lowest, right? To be in prison, to be beaten, to be working for pittance, trying to make his way to the next city so that he can share the gospel with them. And he says, I know how to abound, how to be filled with whatever that was that was filling him. Maybe at times he had his pockets full of money and he could hit several cities one after another and didn't have to work for a while. But just abounding in the spirit as he's sharing the gospel. He says, I know how to be abased and know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. Christ strengthens runs the race with me. We can do that too. We can have that abundant life as well. Paul did not do things by half measures. He was full speed in everything. That's the work of Christ Jesus in him. 
He lived the life that Jesus called him to live with maximum abundance. He experienced the highs, experienced the lows. Whether in joy or in sorrow, he did all of those things. Christ Jesus. Solomon was not wrong about life. But Jesus, by this one passage, condemns Solomon's wisdom to the grave that he's so often obsessed about. What he had to say was true, and it is also wrong when it's without Jesus. Solomon says that his life is futile and vain. Jesus says, run the race with me. Experience the complete life possible. The most passionate life possible. The most complex life possible. And the most painful, but also the most joy-filled life you can ever have. And then, once this time is over, then we can really begin to live. What comes next? In writing to Timothy in his farewell letter, he says uh, this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. He didn't say perfect fight. He didn't say I've got everything right that I have fought the good fight, which is oftentimes translated the beautiful, honorable, honest fight. He's lived honestly with Christ. I have finished, I have completed, I've perfected the race. I've perfected the race. I have kept, I've guarded, I've watched over, and I've served the faith. Finally, this, this word is really interesting because it almost gives the idea of actually the rest, the remaining, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on this day, not to me only, but also to all who have loved all of us. To run 